If you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we will get the pleasure tonight for a few moments to talk about love. Isn't that something that we always look forward to? Topics like love and lust and sex and we'll just stop, I guess, with, with all of those things. First uh, Corinthians 13, uh, we've been reading through uh, the New Testament together uh, as a church, uh, for those of you who have been following our reading plan, and we have been in First Corinthians for a little while now, and so we've covered a lot of uh, different content. Um, somebody asked me if I was going to teach something from First Corinthians 14 about women being quiet in church or something like that, and I just figured we'd stay away from that uh, for a little while. Maybe we get a couple more years into this thing uh, before we start talking about some of those. And so um, as I was reading uh, last week and this week, I couldn't get away uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's probably also because of the context of some of my own readings lately. Um, as Sunday, we'll be kind of traveling through some, some scripture that deals with husbands and wives and, uh, you know, biblical marriage and what it looks like to relate uh, to each other and love each other the way that God desires. And so 1 Corinthians 13 has just kind of been heavy on my heart. And so I thought we'd spend a little bit of time uh, there tonight and just kind of maybe glean some wisdom uh, from the Lord on how we can better love one another and better uh, teach um, those around us what God's love looks like compared to what the world's love looks like. Now, you know, um, as well as I do, that our world, our society, um, our culture, our community, um, the, the world in which we live in is constantly throwing at us the idea uh, of the need for sexual enjoyment and the satisfaction of the opposite sex, right? Everywhere we look and turn, there are things that are leading us to think about love, think about relationships, think about sex. There are plenty of things that are uh, jiving for our attention and lustful intentions and and, and, and all sorts of things that are, that are bidding at the sinful nature that is within us. Uh, we could name all sorts of examples of this, and probably we could all list um, different things that we've seen lately that are just more enticing and just more uh, wicked and just more opportunities for the devil to drag people down. And a lot of times it's based on a sexual nature. Whether it's media, you know, uh, movies, books, magazines, TV, internet, uh, phones, you know, golly, the, the, the exposure that's at the fingertips of our young people every single day, um, friends, music, whatever the case is, there, there's just this great pressure from the world around us uh, to indulge and enjoy things that, though they are good, in their wrong place and in their wrong time, are very, very bad. There is extreme pressure on what I like to call finding the one that everybody is so obsessed with whether or not I will find that perfect person. Now, this is a little bit more relevant to me as well, especially as my kids are getting older, because even though I have a 10-year-old and I have an 8-year-old, they're already beginning conversations about, they said that boy was my boyfriend, or they said that girl was my girlfriend, or so-and-so kissed so-and-so at school today, or, you know, whatever, right? There's just Already, I mean, 10 years old and 8 years old, there's this pressure about girlfriends and boyfriends or whether or not someone likes them. Even my 8-year-old daughter already, body image kind of things and discussions about why she's not like the others and why a dress doesn't fit her like somebody else's dress fits. I mean, it's just all this pressure about the way you look and, and, and sexual enticement and just all around us, there's this picture of love that maybe is a little different than what God talks about. I wrote a couple questions down as I was reading. I thought to myself, 
Why is it that our culture is so obsessed with romantic relationships and sex? Now, I'm not asking for your response. That was just something that was, that was going through my mind. I also thought as I was jotting down some notes, why are there so many pressures being placed on everyone, whether it's to find someone special or to find someone new, right? Find someone better. Find a better situation than the one that I'm in. If I feel it, if I like it, if it seems good in the moment, why not have it? Why not go after it? Why not indulge in it? Everything else seems to promote it and say it's okay. Why not me? Why not now? Now, none of us can deny certainly our strong desire to have relationships with other people. This is a basic characteristic that we were designed within to have, designed for relationships. As a matter of fact, when we just think about being created in the image of God, we understand that God exists within perfect relationship all in Himself, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Think about that for a moment. There's never a time when God is alone. Actually, let's not think about that much because it's just going to blow our minds the more we think about it, right? He is in constant connection and relationship. And of course, relationships are wonderful and great for us to have as a part of our lives. We should invest in them. We should build our lives around them. And the reason is because God has and God does. He desires for us to exist within relationships. His greatest love is for people and so should ours. Just think about the importance that God places on relationships, even in the very beginning. He created Adam to enjoy a love relationship with him. Shortly after that, even God knew that deep inside of Adam, there was a desire for an intimate relationship with someone else. God has a deep desire to show affection to us through relationships. And since we are created in his image, we have that same desire within us. So we know the story. God saw that the man was alone and created a helper fit for him. And Eve became Adam's helper and companion through life. He designed us to be in relationships with one another, and that certainly includes romantic relationships, marriage, as we see from the creation story with Adam and Eve. However, in our world, right, in our culture, relationships have been twisted and marred by the effects of sin and the fall. Now it seems that relationships are less about how to help each other and they're more about how it can help me. And so for us to build, in my opinion, genuine relationships that are expressed as God intended, we certainly need to put before our minds a biblical understanding of love. And so tonight, that's what I want to do. I want us to uh, fill in this blank. Love is... Right? A lot of definitions that we could come to with different places and different people that describe love. I want to begin with this first one, the world's definition of love. Now, before we jump into 1 Corinthians 13, I just want us to process through some of the things that are in our culture today. Now, I want to be careful because I know some of you in here are like, Danny, I've been married for 60 years. I know love better than... Actually, I don't have a good example of better than who, right? And I'm with you, okay? I had not had a dating relationship in 70 years. I know, right? Romance to you is your underwear got cleaned last week. You didn't have to do it yourself, right? Like, I understand all these kind of things, okay? 
I understand that this topic may seem a little less relevant to an older crowd. But here's what I think is important. The world has a definition of love, and so does God. And they're very different. And the more we want to present a picture of Jesus' love for the church, God's love for humanity, and the greater picture to our community and lost friends of what love looks like, God created an incredible picture of that, and he called it marriage, and we get to enjoy it daily. Now you say, Danny, I'm not married, or I'm not married anymore, or I never want to be married, or I'm not even thinking about marriage, or whatever the case may be. There's still a truth about love compared to the world's standards and God's, and we have a responsibility not just to ourselves, but to the next generation to help guide them to understand what love is according to God versus what love is from the culture around them that's pounding them with so many other ideas. And so I want to begin with the world's definition of love, and here's what I wrote. Love is a fleeting emotion that seeks the pleasure and happiness of the individual. I want to say it again. The world's definition of love. Love is a fleeting emotion that seeks the pleasure and happiness of the individual. Now we see this through several different ways in our world as it defines the word love. Here's the first one that stands out probably the most in our culture. Love is sex. Right? Like that's the idea. Love is sex. Everywhere throughout our culture, it's apparent that the world's word for love is synonymous with the world's word for sex. If love is an emotion that seeks the pleasure and happiness of the individual, then what better way to fulfill that purpose than to abuse one of the most beautiful things that God has designed for a husband and a wife? Love is sex, sex is pleasure, and pleasure is all that matters in this life. The world tells us that if we truly love someone, then we should express that love through sexual intimacy or some sort of sexual affection. We already talked about how we see this all across our world. Whether it be books, magazines, TV, movies, music, billboards, advertisements, newspapers, family, friends, everywhere. It is surrounding everybody. If you don't think this, ask the average single college student what's the first question they hear when they show up to Thanksgiving dinner, right? Have you met someone? Do you have a girlfriend? Is there a special lady out there for you, right? I remember hearing this over and over again as there was constant pressure to find whoever that was. The only way to show someone that they are important is to give them something extremely intimate such as sex. If you love me, you will have sex with me. The Bible is pretty clear about the significance of sex and how it is intended to be done. We could read scripture after scripture, but I will not bore you with that. But I will give you a couple of references. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It may be the most prominent. I'm going to read it. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Though the world may define love with the word sex, God is clear that sex doesn't equal love. Let me give you another picture of the world's definition of this fleeting emotion. Love is sex. Love is also romance. This is the less 
physical nature of the same dangerous levels of intimacy between two people who should not have them. Love is romance. Some people are in love with the idea of being in love. You know some of these people. Nervous energy running through their body all the time, right? Think about these moments, even if it's been a long time for some of you in the room. You think of that person every waking moment. You lose interest in mundane chores such as eating, sleeping, and thinking rationally. You listen to every love song like it was written with the two of you in mind. You see the whole world as a new place, as Aladdin sings in the background, a whole new world. <laughs> romance is certainly good. Please do not think that I'm giving you permission, especially husbands, not to have romance in your life ever again. But romance is only a small part of the emotional side of love. And settling for romance is like settling for the sandbox when God wants to give you the beach. One of my most favorite moments in the Bible that gives us a picture of, of, of the commitment of marriage versus simply romance or sex is Jacob and Rachel. You probably are familiar with this story if you've read your Bible very many times or have been in very many Sunday school classes or things like that. But listen to this part of the story in Genesis chapter 29. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, there's interesting translations about what weak eyes means. Apparently, Leah was not very attractive. So Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. By the way, if some guy comes and tells me that about Janelyn, I am a little interested at first. Laban said, it's better that I give her... Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And this is a beautiful moment, right? This is the romance moment. He was floating on a cloud for those seven miserable working years as he was looking forward to his wife by the name of Rachel. But here's what we know. Laban tricks him and makes him work seven more years, right? He gives him his older daughter, Leah, and then says, hey, my bad. I just missed which one it was. No big deal. How about you work seven more years and you can have Rachel? Now, listen, when I read this story, I think about Laban making him work for 14 years to have his daughter's hand in marriage. And here's what I think. For poor Jacob, that had to equal some serious commitment. As a matter of fact, some of you are out there thinking, I wish it would only felt like 14 years of work. This is getting tough, right? Romance is certainly a part of love. Dating, romance, marriage, relationships. However, if romance is all you're looking for, you don't know love. Let me show you another one. This is according to the world's definition of love, right? Love is sex. Love is romance. Love is emotions. Emotions. It is primarily about a feeling. This kind of love is only valuable when it makes us feel good, when it makes us feel happy. It is fleeting feelings that we must keep searching for every day. Now here's the danger, you ready? If we no longer feel happy, then we've got to go find someone else who will make us feel that again. 
And so when we equate love to sex, we will always need that type of attention in order for it to be successful, right? If we equate love to romance, then what happens when it fades? If we equate love to emotions, what happens when we don't feel that way tomorrow when we wake up? Here's another way I like to think about the way the world defines love. Love is uncontrollable. Uncontrollable. It's outside of my control. You say, Daniel, what do you mean? Well, think about some of the phrases that we use to describe love. I'll give you two of them that stand out to me when it comes to being uncontrollable. Here's the first one. Falling in love. Okay, there's the first one. Here's the second one. Madly in love. Now these phrases explain how love is out of our control. Why do we feel compelled to describe love as a pit or as a mental disorder? You say, Danny, what do you mean? What can someone do if they fall into a pit? They're helpless. I didn't choose this. It wasn't what I wanted. God must have done this to me. It is outside of my control. I fell in love with someone that I should not have fallen in love with. What can I do about it? It's uncontrollable, right? What responsibility does an animal have on its actions if it contracts rabies and runs around foaming at the mouth and biting people? No one was mad at old Yeller. They were just sad they had to kill him because he had rabies, right? He couldn't help it. He can't control it. He's mad. It's not his fault. I am madly in love. By not having responsibility in love, we can excuse our actions no matter how they affect our lives or hurt someone else's. See the issue? It's now no longer about me. I don't have responsibility. It's not my fault. I can do whatever I need to do because love is a fleeting emotion that exists for my happiness and for my good pleasure. And when that changes, I can do whatever I see fit because it's really outside of my control. But is it really love if it puts us before God? Now, maybe you're thinking, because I, I, I'm with you on this, Danny, you're being too negative. You don't understand the relationship that I have with my spouse or my significant other, okay? Um, this isn't how love is in our world. Or maybe you think, Danny, most people don't think about love this way. Most people have pure, good hearts. All right. Maybe I'm the only one that doesn't, but I would dare say that's probably not the case. Matter of fact, I'm not the only one. Let me... This is from Elizabeth Elliot. She wrote this in Passion and Purity. She said, As I grew into womanhood and began to learn what was in my heart, I saw very clearly that of all things difficult to rule, none were more so than my will and my affections. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What about this? This is where another author put it. Picture guarding your heart as if your heart were a criminal tied in a chair who would like to break free and knock you over the head. Even though we're told by our world, by our society, to follow your heart, 
Not saying it's a bad phrase, and if you've used it, I'm not mad at you. I have too. I also would like to follow my heart. I secretly want to be a Disney princess. Actually, I don't know why I said that. That was weird. Sorry, I take that back. I'm going to retract that from the recording. I've made this phrase plenty of times, right? Follow your heart. But can I tell you something, friends? Our hearts can be very misleading. They can lie and they can even be completely wrong. Listen to this bit of wisdom from Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now that may sound a little confusing. It does to me too. So listen to this from the New Living Translation. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Let me say that again. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. I can think of numerous times that my heart has longed for a desire or a passion that God didn't approve of. The heart is the source of our attitudes, it's the source of our words, it's the source of our deeds, if we fail to keep it clean, the rest of our lives will stagnate and become dirty. So I've got this question tonight. Is this the love we want to settle for, or is there more? Is this the love we want to bring our children up in? Is this the love we want to see the next generation fall for? Is this all there is, and as good as it's ever going to get? That love is a fleeting emotion that seeks the pleasure and happiness of the individual. Or is there more? Well, this is the second point. Not the world's definition of love, but God's definition of love. You say, Danny, is there something different? Absolutely, there's something different. As a matter of fact, here is how I would put God's definition of love. You ready? Love is a commitment that seeks to serve others and glorify God. There's the difference. You remember the other one? It's written down somewhere probably. Love is a fleeting emotion that seeks the pleasure and happiness of the individual. That's the world's definition. God's definition, love is a commitment that seeks to serve others and glorify God. You say, Danny, did you make that up? No. Jesus is the perfect model of what God's love looks like. Let me just share some of it with you. He gave himself for a world that rejected him. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He told us to love even our enemies. Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He came to be last. He came to serve. Matthew 20.28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did everything for his Father's glory. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Listen, Jesus modeled God's love to perfection. Which is why Paul gives us this description in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 4. I promise we're not just beginning. <laughs> Paul wrote, Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I don't know if any of you are in my generation or upbringing, but as soon as I read this text every time, does anybody else picture Mandy Moore in A Walk to Remember? Anybody? My alone? All right, a couple of you out there are seeing that image right now in your mind. All right, if you're older, you don't. If you're younger, actually, you're, you're probably not. So anyway, we'll just stick with the older. Anyway, that's all I can think about when I read this passage in Scripture. <laughs> I mean, I think about God's definition of love as well, but I'm just telling you, Mandy Moore in that movie is what I'm picturing right now. Nonetheless, I, I digress. Paul's writing this, 1 Corinthians 13. You've been reading 1 Corinthians? Anybody with me on that? A couple of you? Yeah? Has anybody else realized the dysfunction that's happening in Corinth? Yeah, like, I don't know if you thought, like, maybe we're missing a few things here, or maybe life isn't going how you planned. I'm going to tell you something right now. The church in Corinth was a messed up group of folks, okay? That's who Paul's writing to. It's a group of people who've gotten the idea of love and relationships so messed up that it was like writing a letter about celibacy to a porn star. It was like showing a picture to a blind man. Is that better connection than the other one? A little weird to say porn star at church, huh? <laughs> relationships had become so misused that there was... No more value to the importance of any relationship as it related to helping each other and bringing glory to God. Let me give you an illustration of this. The very word Corinthian was a synonym for immorality or sexual sin. The phrase, to play the Corinthian, means to indulge in sexual pleasure. A Corinthian girl was another way of calling someone a prostitute. This is the type of culture that Paul's writing in. Corinth so misunderstood relationships and sex that it elevated sex to a religious pursuit. Now listen, I know I said sex several times and porn star at least three, but we don't have sexual practices in our worship services. See the difference? We at least have some set of standards somewhere, right? The major temple in Corinth, the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, employed over a thousand prostitutes. The temple that they worshipped at. How could they understand that God is love when every corner of the city provided a counterfeit love, seducing them at every moment? Is this not how it seems oftentimes in our world today? The idea of relationships has become so misunderstood that people equate love to sex. Love is no longer a commitment, but rather a pleasure to indulge in. The pursuit is no longer about discovering someone to enjoy all the fullness of God with, but instead it's about the enjoyment of how I can fulfill my own pleasure. However, just like the church in Corinth, even in our day today, God's still calling those who will listen to His real love. 
And really for me, as I read this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, I believe Paul sums it up with three different words. Here's the first one. Love sacrifices. It's the first picture of God's definition of love. Love sacrifices. This is why Paul said, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is patient, not pushy or irritable. It does not go after what's best for it. It goes after what's best for others, even at the sake of losing what might be best for me. Our culture thinks sex is the door to love, but God says that love is the door to sex. Love is kind, not boastful or arrogant. Patience reveals that love waits. Kindness reveals that while love waits, it does good. Patience deals with what we cannot do. Kindness deals with what we can do. Our relationship should be founded on doing what will help others grow in Christ. Love is understanding, not envious, not rude, not resentful. Matter of fact, Paul will later write this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's, here's the words he writes to them. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I don't know about you, but that paints a completely different picture of love. Not one that is self-seeking, but one that is sacrificial. Every relationship is an opportunity to love someone as Christ loves us, to sacrifice for the good of others, not ourselves. Let me show this next one. Love seeks. Love seeks. This is why Paul said in verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You say, Danny, what does love seek? Well, you never seek something that's wrong, right? When you're seeking something, you're seeking what's right, what's good, what's true. That's what love seeks. Love is truth. It's not love if it's asking you to do something God would forbid. Love does not want wrongdoing. It wants what is right. Listen, the world makes love selfish and about us, but God portrays it differently to us. Matter of fact, Jesus shows us the perfect truth about love through His Life. Jesus showed us that love is not for the fulfillment of self, but for the glory of God and the good of others. True love is selfless. It gives, sacrifices, even dies. This is why Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus showed us that love is not about what you feel. Jesus died even when he did not feel like it. Remember Luke 22? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus showed us that we have control over love. He chose to die for us. This is why John wrote, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Listen, love is not uncontrollable. It seeks truth always. Let me show you this last one. Love also serves. That's why Paul writes in verses 7 and 8, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things, love never ends. I like how Paul put it to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2 verse 4. He said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is protection because it bears all things. You know what this phrase, bears all things, 
can actually be translated as? It can be translated as the word covers. In other words, it covers all things. It protects all things. It literally means to put a roof over someone's head as in to shelter someone. Think about the phrase that we hear a lot. That person is just too sheltered. It's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Love seeks to protect each other from the evil of sexual immorality. Have we been seeking to protect each other from the hurt of sexual sin? Have we been covering? Have we been protecting? Have we been sheltering? Or have we been going after what makes us feel better? Love is faith because it believes all things. Love has the power to see the good in all people. It believes that no matter what, God has our best interests and others' best interests at heart. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans at 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Love is hope because it hopes all things and endures all things. Listen, this isn't like the hope that we sometimes talk about where we hope to win the lottery or I hope LSU beats Ole Miss in baseball this weekend. No, it's not that kind of hope. <laughs> To hope with the knowledge of what is to come. One commentary writer put it like this. In its own sphere, hope is a very strong word. The second coming of the Lord Jesus is spoken of as a blessed hope. That is what keeps us going, which enables us to rise above our circumstances, to face the future, to laugh at death itself. We have something it cannot take away. We have hope. Love is forever because love never ends. Listen, this notion is so contrary to our culture and our world, contrary to popular belief, right? In a world of fleeting lust and desire, love is thought of as no more than an excitement that can only be captured for a moment. However, God tells us love is forever. It never ends. Long after the enemy is gone, love will remain. Love wins. So listen. Danny, why are you lecturing us on love? <laughs> well, as we think about what love is, we are left with two very different views. As a matter of fact, I want to read to you how one author puts the difference between the world's love and God's. It's beautiful. You ready? I should have put it in the notes. It's worth putting somewhere. The world takes us to a silver screen on which flickering images of passion and romance play. And as we watch, the world says, this is love. God takes us to the foot of a tree on which a naked and bloodied man hangs and says, no, this is love. Are we ready to embrace what love truly is and begin to love others as God commands rather than using love as a way for us to accomplish our own selfishness. Really, we have two questions to ask ourselves. Is love what God says it is? Is it a commitment that seeks to serve others and glorify God? Do you see love as an opportunity to sacrifice, to seek, to serve? Or is love what the world says it is? A fleeting emotion that seeks the pleasure and happiness of the individual. Friends, can I tell you something? The more we buy into the world's definition of love, the more and more our world will be wrecked by the brokenness that is our sin. Maybe it's time, at least for us in this building tonight, 
to realize it's not on a movie screen. It's not a leg kick up in the air. It's Jesus laying everything down for His friends. What if that was the type of love that we embraced as we thought about what that picture actually looks like every day in our lives?